0: Meet me this evening, Michelle. It's, um, it's wonderful to chat to you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And oh, I'm awesome. not just hyping it up. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, just as a, a little bit of an intro, uh, Michelle Van Heerden is in the business of making science cool. <laughs> um, uh she has a um a master's from cput and is a phd uh what's the word phd candidate candidate that's the word um at stilly's you are currently taking a little bit of a break uh because you have a, a beautiful little one four months right four five months no four months yesterday yeah yeah um, so uh, Michelle's taking a little bit of a break but uh, when I heard that she was an oceanographer I was blown away <laughs> um, uh, she, I think she played it down and um, you know her response was it's not as cool as you think but I think scientists <laughs> are pretty cool and so um, I twisted her arm a bit and um, I asked her to come on here and chat to me about uh, some science, some interesting science stuff. And uh, so this evening, welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for making time. I know you have a little one, um, and I know it can be challenging, uh, but thanks for making time to uh, chat to me this evening. It's wonderful to have you. No problem, thanks for having me. Wonderful. Uh, Now, when when we were first chatting, uh, you had a really interesting story about how you actually got into um, studying oceanography. Um, Why don't you share a little bit about that?
1: Okay, Um, so when I finished high school, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, I took a, well, it wasn't really a gap year at that point, there was no such thing as a gap year. (laughs) But um, I worked in restaurants and I also studied photography. And um, then the year passed after school, and I was in my parents' front garden, um, watering the garden, um, <laughs> as we remember the good old days when we were allowed to do that. Yeah. And um, my mate that was at school with me, JJ, he actually um, stopped on his bike, his motorcycle, his very impressive motorcycle at that point. Um, he stopped, and uh, while I was watering the garden, and he was, I was like, "Hey, how are you doing? Haven't seen you in forever." And yeah, and he said, he said he's studying oceanography and I was like, wow, what is that? And we used to do biology together. He was in my bio class. And I'm like, that sounds so interesting. What is that? And I also thought it was dolphinography. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, we'll get to that. And yeah, and he explained to me what it is. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I would really, I'm interested. I want to do this. And he's like, but you can't because we're already a week That's in. And they like, at that point, they only accepted like 30 students every three or two years. Right. So I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like I'm going to do this. And it was like January. And so my mom and I hopped in the car the next morning. Wow. And we drove through to CPUT and we tracked down the head of the program, um, Conrad Sparks, at that point, now Dr. Conrad Sparks. And, yeah, I sat outside his office, my mom and I, and we waited for him. And he eventually showed up. <laughs> and I was like, hi, I'm Michelle. I'm going to study oceanography." Right. And he was like, okay, well, you're a little bit late, <laughs> firstly. <laughs> and right. also, you know, and then he was like, "But well, do you have your report with you? And I'm like, yes, here it is. And he's like, but you don't have science. So... <laughs> The irony here is that I did not have science at school. Um, <laughs> and I will explain just now why that is so ironic. <laughs> but, yes, I didn't have science at school. So, yeah, and he was like, but you don't have science. And I'm like, but you don't understand. Like, I was a really poor student. I was lazy. We used to bunk school a lot to get up to mischief at my house because it was right opposite the school. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and he, he was just like, but you don't have that. And I'm like, don't worry, I'll make it. And he's like, do you understand that from the 30 people that we let in, only like 10 make it with a diploma. And from that 10, probably five make it to B-Tech. At that point, it was B-Tech. It wasn't honors yet. Right. Um And maybe one will do their masters. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, I, will, I will be one of the people doing my masters. And you <laughs> like, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that is ambitious I'm like, yeah, well, you know you're going to have to give me a go to see if I can do this and I kind of wore him down and <laughs> he, he then he he, yeah, he let me into the program and um, I had to work really hard in my first year and um, there was a very good balance between studying and dueling but um, yeah and I ended up being one of the three out of our class that did our masters Uh, Yeah, and then after that, I actually worked at CPUT with said head of program, and he became my colleague, and myself and him were together, and we worked on his PhD, and I was the research technician on his PhD, so yeah, so we've come a long way. (laughs)
0: Listen, I have to say, that's probably one of the most incredible stories that I've ever heard (laughs) with regards to studying a particular subject. Now, there's a few things that I... <laughs> number one, the fact that you made the decision to study oceanography while watering your plants outside and your mate pops <laughs> by to let you know, hey, this is what I'm doing. You say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's me, hey. Eh? Like, I make split-second decisions all the time, but it, you, when you know, you know. So it's like, okay, yes. And then it's usually the right decision. I made that decision about my husband as well.
0: <laughs> well... So thinking it was the right one. <laughs> yes, that. that's, that's, that's absolutely incredible. What a, what a story. What a, and it, it really is. And I'm not just making, you know, hyping that up as well. I think that's a pretty cool story um, in terms of how you, how you got studying um, such an interesting subject. Now, when you and I spoke the last time, Um, You did some incredible work and research into uh, something that we all are familiar with, but maybe you can shed some light in terms of the work that you you did uh, with oysters.
1: Yeah, okay. I I saw your post with the the oysters, the Austria. (laughs) That's like like an order name, basically, a general umbrella term, if you will, for true oysters. And the species that I... um, worked with was triostrea margaritae which is the latin for our indigenous oyster and um, yeah so they're the wild oysters and they're not they're not um, the oysters that you generally get in the restaurants those nicely shaped ones those are the european oyster the european oh, flat says-
0: Oh so hang on yeah. so we don't so we don't consume the local indigenous oyster no not no <laughs> not
1: our indigenous species
0: no, not as far as i know. Reason, Is there any specific reason
1: for that? Um, or is it just was...
0: a, from a commercial point of view, from an aesthetic point of view, uh, they look better? Is there any other reason? I,
1: I'm, I'm going back now two pregnancies ago with my brain, okay. so you have to excuse me. <laughs> but uh, but um, so, um, the European flat is obviously more in a warmer climate, which means that it will it will grow faster. Oh, okay. um, and, it was, and it is... Um, um, Cultured, whereas our wild oyster, as far as I know, I think there might be one site in Neisner, Remember, this was two thousand and thirteen, so it might be right. different now. Um, but I think there might be one site that I know of that m- might be culturing them in um, in Nisner, um but not in the not at all with the biomass that the European one is being. Um, right,
0: right. And there's, and also, the. There's
1: Yes, they're farm, yeah, cultured and farmed, yeah. Right. So um also the shape of the oyster. so if you have like normal like our oysters it grows with the bed that it was put on. So that they're, they're like all weird shapes and stuff, and they're also very salty. I, I prefer them, I think they're awesome. Um, with the European flat oysters a bit more hollow, like
0: you know, like more yeah. fleshy if you could put it. Right, that way. right. Right. And uh tell me regarding our um, our oysters, um uh, like what, what's the what's the commercial is there a commercial name or are they like just just called oysters is, is there like you have the the african uh rock lobster uh that we would call a crayfish um do you have something similar with oysters or are they, uh, are they just not that i'm
1: aware of no so you have like the you just have like the oyster you've you've got a west coast oyster for instance um, right. A lot of the time, you'll hear from east coast or west coast that that you would hear, um, right. yeah. So you would maybe from location point of view, but not like a slang like crayfish,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and, and uh, regarding lobster, uh, oysters, uh, they, they're a mollusk from from what I understand, right? Is is that correct?
1: Yes, they're a bivalve mollusk. Yeah, which means they've got two valves and they're soft
0: body inside them, the shell. Okay. and do they do they just kind of attach themselves to um like a rock for example, or
1: how do yeah, so they they they, a rock? um so you would generally get an oyster that is on a a bed um any solid type of bed um you call them spats when they're small, so the spats will obviously settle on something when an oyster spawns there is like a tremendous amount of um you know little spats that are going right. to come out from one oyster and they will settle um, anywhere, basically where the current takes them. But generally the oyster that spawned would be on a hard surface. So they would then right. settle. That. As you often find them like growing on top of one another um, where yeah. the old the the old shells, if they've now naturally just been left there and we haven't interfered um, and say like there's, there's been birds that maybe Have picked out open some, then you'll see oysters growing on top of oysters where they're actually using the shell as a substrate.
0: Wow, that's very interesting. And what was the work that you were involved with regarding uh, oysters?
1: Um, I was involved in a branch of oceanography called ecotoxicology, and that branch is over not only just in oceanography but also in marine conservation, um, and it's more on a chemical, chemistry side. And um, what I did with the oysters is I determined how heavy metals flow through the environment and if we could use um, the oyster, our indigenous oyster, as an indicator species for heavy metal contamination in the environment. So instead of, um, you know, now having to wait a very long time, if we suspect that an area is contaminated with heavy metals, you can maybe... You know, pluck a oyster, go do a very simple test, and it would show you the accumulation of certain metals in that environment because they are
0: filtering um, mollusks. And, and mercury being one of those uh, heavy metals? My study
1: did not focus on mercury per se. Um, my study was on zinc, copper, um, aluminium, and iron, so uh, i don't know how much you know about biology but those are micro uh, micronutrients as well and micro um, elements that we do need so we actually do need copper and so does the oyster and iron and zinc and al- aluminium um, but we don't know to what extent so yeah. i was looking at how they compartmentalize that in their bodies and um also in the sediment and the water adjacent so how what is the Um, ability to actually accumulate it and how long it takes and all sorts of things of how those metals move through the environment using the oyster to show me yeah
0: that's actually pretty smart so you would actually test the the oyster you know to get a a, a reading of of that particular environment in terms of heavy metals
1: Yes, but it would. Um, now that's where the trick came in. Is when you test the oyster for those metals, you can't. It's not a snapshot of what is happening now. It's a snapshot of what maybe, um, or that is what my study at the end showed that it's what has been there. So, oh. of course, they accumulated, but also their lifespan isn't very long. So, um, so yeah. So it was a it was, it was a good it was a good study, but it wasn't. Um, solid enough to actually right. implement on a national scale in terms of heavy metal contamination. Not good enough. what I mean. The results weren't, like, you know... Conclusive. I guess. Conclusive, enough. yes. More, more research would need to be done on that.
0: Well, I guess that's the reason why you, you have these studies and you have people like yourselves going out and, 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 and creating these studies. And, and that's, I, I guess, the beauty of science, is that, yes. you know, you put out the hypothesis and you test it. Uh, yes, And exactly. if it holds, then it's good. And uh, if it doesn't, then it was a good study. And then you move on to a exactly. different study. Now, you, yeah. you did move on to, you. well, you haven't really, uh, I, I, I forget if you commenced on that study, but you, uh, you have quite an interesting story around uh, the African uh, rock lobster. But before we go to that, I want to ask, and, and this might seem like a silly question, so please bear with me. Uh, when are, are pearls made in, in oysters?
1: Um, do you know what? I'm actually not 100% sure. I know they are made in some clam species and then in some um, some oyster species, but those oysters aren't true oysters. So they're okay. classified differently. Yes.
0: Oh.
1: So I think they're tending more towards clams, actually.
0: Okay, yeah. okay. Okay, that's That's
1: what I think. That's not
0: what I know. Okay. <laughs> it's not, yeah. I'm not 100% sure. It's spoken like a true scientist. I like that. <laughs> I really like that. Uh, just as an interesting question, um, what is, how, how is uh, an oceanographer different from, say, a, a marine biologist?
1: Okay, so marine biology focuses obviously on biology, say, so um, you would, you would be working most more um, with animals um, and with the biology, whereas oceanography is more of a marine science. So, And the science comprises of biology, chemistry, and physics. So you have the three main branches of oceanography, which is chemistry, physics. Um, So, for instance, chemical oceanographers um, would work with, you Know plankton, oh, no, sorry, that's biological oceanographers. They work with the mammals and things, but they also work with like plankton production and O2 right. production in the water. Um, the chemical oceanographers are sort of everywhere in between because ev- there's chemistry everywhere. So you would never right. do one branch purely, you would always sort of collaborate. Too. So, for instance, my PhD is sort of a mixture between all three branches um, right. where the physical the physics is obviously the hydrology and the the currents and the engines that drive the ocean. Um, Yeah. So there is like, it's more, it's more science based where, yeah, when, when I was lecturing at CPUT, a lot of the first years, and I was one of them, you know, like I thought it was dolphinography. So we're going to swim with dolphins now. (laughs) And and then, then, then you go into like um, uh, electronics was one of your, Wow. You know, was your, um, yeah, you have to be able to fix the sonar. Right. <laughs> so okay. Like, right. okay. <laughs> no, so you have marine biology as a subject, but you also have digital engineering systems. You have electronics. Oh, that was in the old curriculum. We actually, um, yeah, the uh, oceanography at CPUT doesn't exist anymore. It's now the new marine science program, which is a lot Um, It's a great improvement on the old one. I was uh, involved a little bit in that as well.
0: And and tell me, uh, in terms of oceanography in South Africa, does it fall under a specific, uh, uh, like in terms of uh, academics, does it fall under uh, any government body or umbrella body?
1: Yes, yes. So um, in the olden days, (laughs) um, it was called marine and coastal management. And then uh, yeah, MCM then dissipated into DAF and DEA, so it's under um, environmental affairs. We it used to be environmental affairs and tourism, and then yeah, so then uh, Deed split into DAF and DEA. So those are the two main governing bodies that that um, run the well. Most of the oceanographers would be there, and then obviously in academia as well. Most universities have um postdocs working for them and doing projects through universities collaborating internationally
0: wow that's super interesting now for your phd uh, program or uh, your studies um you had like a, a really well i think a, a super fascinating um well area of of research um why don't you chat to us a little bit about uh, the african rock lobster
1: the West Coast rock lobster. No, West, Coast. <laughs> West Coast rock lobster. That's the one I'm working on. There, there's a South Coast rock lobster as well. Um, okay. what is the tasty like... one. <laughs> That's I
0: don't
1: what's... know. The South Coast one is bigger, uh, but I would say I prefer the West Coast one, to be quite honest. Right. But I might be a bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: Can you tell them apart, no, by the way? Yes, easily. Yeah. The so one the, one the one. yeah the um, South Coast rock lobster has um has white markings in between, and, and they they're larger. Their eyes are larger, and um, because they're in a warmer current. So
0: yeah. West Coast, West Coast. West Coast yeah. Uh, <laughs> <that's it. laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, So my study comprises of working with the walkout events. We call them walkout events of the West Coast Rock Lobster. Um, I'm sure that you guys have seen in newspapers and stuff the mass strandings like on the beaches where they're just covered and people are just running and looting lobster like there's no tomorrow. Um, So that is what we call a walkout event. Um, Which is once again very inaccurately named because they don't actually walk out of the ocean They are actually pushed out due to a low oxygen event Um, So what my study is hoping to do is if we can predict these events with an accuracy of one to two weeks um, then we would be able to open the fishing quotas in those areas and put pressure in those areas to fish them before they're actually pushed out so that we don't lose so much of the resource. Um, now I must get my numbers straight once again, two pregnancies ago. Um, but I think our TAC, I think our TAC is something between now, this is going to be very vague because I can't remember the number completely, but say between 1,000 and 4,000, oh, sorry, yeah, 1,000 and 4,000 tons. Of lobster, so one of these walkout events can, you know, comprise of between ten and forty thousand tons. So that's, that's just one that it cool. doesn't necessarily happen every year. Yeah. But you can see, like, if, if you take the totality of the resource, um, and the THC is so small in comparison with what is walking out, we're losing so so much. So that is why, um, yeah, that's why the quotas and things have been clipped. Um, which is obviously not great for, for us plebs that like <laughs> lobster. <laughs> so I'm going to try right. and hopefully, yeah, in, in a few years' time, be able to predict that within a very, very, very accurate uh, time frame so that we can save that resource.
0: Now, you mentioned that uh, this phenomenon happens because of uh, the lack of oxygen in the water.
1: Yes. Yes, which is directly tied to red tide.
0: Right. Okay. So, so does, uh, and of course, red tide affects um, different species as well, not just lobster. Right? It affects fish and yes, 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 yes other sea creatures as well. Uh, yes. And and how does that actually occur? Does it? So, I'm I'm assuming that it occurs in pockets or or specific areas. Yes. Um, and and. In terms of red tide, how does that uh, sap out the oxygen? How how does that whole thing happen? Okay, so like very, very
1: condensed because I can talk to you about that for like five hours, so I won't. (laughs) You'll fall asleep. (laughs) Um, uh, We have something in the ocean called upwelling and upwelling is um, usually in the winter months when we have strong winds on the surface current and then that triggers a churning of the water so all the nutrients that are lying at the bottom of um, the ocean due to um, decomposition of um, different animals yeah. and species mm-hmm. then gets churned upwards and the nutrients are then released so what happens is plankton is they are plankton different plankton species uh, but these are specific ones um, and and they are then on top of the water and what happens is these nutrients get absorbed too quickly. So they're just like munching on these nutrients and then they they start producing a toxin, so which shortens their lifespan wow. and then they die in masses because there's obviously quite a bit of plankton seeing that almost 70% of our oxygen comes from them. So um, then a lot of them die and as they uh, decompose and they sort of like Fall down to the ocean floor. They, you can imagine that they're forming like a, a curtain because as right. they die, they're absorbing oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide because wow. that's part of the decomposition process. Yeah. So when they do that, they they're uh, making this curtain. And if it's in a low uh, mixing area where the water is not being churned or where the hydrology um, is in a bay-like area, then that can then create a curtain that is pushed out with the ties so if animals wow. are trapped on the wrong side of that curtain and they've got their little senses and then they turn around they try and go back and they're like no no oxygen there i have to turn around and go the other way then they actually get pushed out um wow. and if the mix properly then they won't go back in basically
0: that's pretty incredible wow and and uh and, and you can't really see it so if you- you, is it it's it's not visible right uh, like this phenomenon that's that's happening mm,
1: uh, no you wouldn't be able you wouldn't be able to see the low oxygen event but you would be able to see um the red tide uh, it's not always visible but you would be able to see a red sheen um wow. on the water
0: wow oh that, and that's i guess that's why it's called a, a red tide that's that's yes. that's, super, that's science man I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so,
1: cool. so cool yeah i know it is it is very interesting yeah
0: How and so if work? you can pre- predict uh you know when this phenomena takes place what you're saying is that you could at, at that particular time you can sort of remove quotas is that what is that what the study is about hey
1: Um, Yes, so the end part of it would be, so um, quotas are obviously awarded to um, commercial fishermen and subsistence fishermen and all of that, but we would probably be, um, we haven't hashed out these details, but in my mind, we would be focusing on the commercial sector because they're the guys that make the most impact. Um, And we would then tell them to go fish their quotas there. Because right. there are other regulations in place that they're only allowed to fish, you know, these times and only so far inshore and offshore, and there are different sectors. I think there's thirteen or fifteen sectors off our coast, right. so they're only allowed. They're only like awarded um, certain areas. So if we can then open the pressure, they they still only get their quota. But if they get their quota in one go, then you know, then they got it. So then they can leave the rest.
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. And it also makes so much sense because when this event happens, uh, you know, I mean, whether you use the product or well um the lobster or not, it's it's gonna walk out and and then die. You know? Yes. So it exactly. makes sense to, to use it at that point. Uh and I guess even from a subsistence point of view, uh yes. you know, uh, you could create uh you know, jobs, et cetera, during that particular time.
1: Yes. And also we, um, um, uh, there's actually no meat integrity study that has been done as of yet. So we, like, um, that was one area that I'd actually like to also explore, but we'll see how it goes because I think I'm going to be a bit crunched for time, to be quite honest. (laughs) (laughs) The study is already getting out of hand. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the, Maybe I, for guess a I guess that's the thing about uh, research as well you as you look into the subject and as you research the subject uh you find elements of this of the research that become really exciting and things that you would uh most probably want to look into I guess you gotta yeah. I guess you gotta keep things focused hey um, yeah
1: very much so
0: <laughs> No. um NOAA, which is the uh, National Oceanic uh, and Atmospheric Administration, um, <laughs> say that ninety-five percent of uh, the world's oceans uh, is unexplored. We haven't explored it. Um, okay. As a matter of fact, I think is it is it the the Mariana Trench, uh-huh. uh, which is the the deepest trench in uh, in the ocean, um, as only three people have ever uh, went to the bottom of that. I think that's absolutely crazy. We've had more people uh, in space mm. than we've mm. had people in the uh, Mariana Trench. Um, yes. Why, why is that? Is
1: Well, I think, um, okay, so... Oh, I, this is all my opinion, this is not published research, but I think, um, firstly, obviously the ocean, the relationship that you, humans have with the ocean is mainly, well, unfortunately our species is programmed, you know, what, what can you do for me? So, um, obviously the coasts are very, um, are well explored because that is where you would get, and that is also where you get your highest density of edibles. Um, right. So, looking from a historic point of view, people have always flocked to the coast for that food security and so forth. Um, then, also, obviously, I don't know if you know this, but um, when you put, I'm sure you've put your head under water, but for every 10 meters that you go down, you're actually putting another bar of pressure on yourself. So you're putting another atmosphere on yourself. Yep. Um, so, if you look at how far technology has come in the last 20 years. To be able to withstand that type of pressure in the Mariana Trench, it's twelve kilometers deep, so you can okay. just you know do a quick bit of math there, what the pressure would be like there. So the technology mm-hmm. had to catch up for us to do that. Um, also, another another reason why I think space um, exploration was um, was favoured is because we um, we have something called the um, now it escaped me, but it's sort of like a continental claiming um, program where you as a continent, it's called the EEZ, the economical um, something zone. Can't remember now. Two pregnancies (laughs) ago. But um, it's basically where the continental shelf tapers um, into the ocean up to um, 200 meters deep is claimed as part of that continent or that so, so right. South Africa has got quite a quite an extensive easy because we have the Gullis Bank um, on our south coast. Right. Um, and that's why there are so many trawlers from internationally just hanging around here because we have a very large biodiversity around our coast. Oh, um, right. But, yeah, so um, because that most uh, countries have actually done that and they've claimed their little bit of ocean already. So then, you know, where do they go next? They go up. And people don't understand they, you know, they're getting from the ocean what they need from it. So they don't feel a need to explore it, you know, even more. Um, oh. Because it's giving what it needs to give. So I think that's why I'm also, you know, space exploration. I'm actually, after my PhD in oceanography, I'm, I'm, I was telling my husband the other day that I would very much like to do something in astrophysics because that's, it is very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot more unknown there, and also um, threat-wise, you know. So there's uh, the ocean isn't really posing a, a big threat, whereas comets and things that are flying past us that we have no idea about might be yeah. um, more threatening. So that I think that's the reason why they're looking into different things.
0: Um, but yeah, but it just makes me think about all those, um, you know, um, undiscovered species and uh other interesting uh, mysteries that the ocean holds um, yes yeah I, you know I, I find it also uh, like a little bit scary i think uh, just thinking about just the vastness and um you know all, all the other things that um d- uh, dealing with our ocean talking about biodiversity um are we as a country protecting our oceans are we doing a good job in your opinion like where are we in the sca- in 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 the like from a you know from a world point of view where are we in terms of taking care of our resources that we have ar- along our coastlines
1: um i think oh, that's quite a heated topic a very sensitive topic for me um <laughs> i um i think we'll Um, If you look on a global scale, I don't think we're too far behind, but unfortunately with um, any sort of conservation, it's about educating the masses. And um, there's a lot of people that still don't understand the impact that certain things have on um, systems. And not everyone is a scientist and not everyone understands how systems work together to form like what we see every day. And they don't understand how, um, how fragile it really is. Um, there's there's a big controversy with global warming, I'm sure you've heard it, where people are like, oh, but we're only putting in like 1% of the the carbon emissions, you know, whatever volcano erupts, uh, that's like 95%, and but people don't understand that the Earth is built to absorb that, but it's a 0.001%, you know, the last straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Um, it's not little bit that's actually um, tipping the scales into a negative uh, perspective there but yeah so South Africa isn't far behind in terms of conservation um, they're doing a good job there's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of uh, management that's uh, in place that is making a difference the problem I just think is people on the ground um, we have a lot of we have a lot of coastline and there just aren't yeah. enough people trolling. Um, because there are too many people taking chances, not oh. South Africans necessarily. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's uh, there's always more that can be done, uh, but we're not we we are still fighting the good fight, and we'll continue fighting it as long as we can. But um, educating the masses is is something that really does need to be done.
0: Yeah, when I think about uh, like sharks, for example, I think so much work has been done to, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on, on sharks. You know, uh, it's just incredible. Um, I, I, I can remember watching so many documentaries um, that, that were shot along uh, South African coastlines, uh, especially around the Great White and that. Uh just yes. super interesting. Um, and I think the same with uh, seals as well. I think uh, yes. a lot of work has been done um, around those species, hey?
1: Yes, yes, yes. There are there is a there is a lot of research going in um, on in South Africa, um, and there is a lot of international input as well. So we're not we're not doing poorly in terms of research. I just think that you know um, it's not it's not the researchers that are going to chuck paper on the beach. Yeah. Um, unfortunately,
0: yeah.
1: so yeah. we need to we need to um,
0: educate people properly to to actually make a difference. That's incredible. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, but uh, over this past, I think, uh, week and a half, or was it two weeks now? Um, oh, the Mauritius, the, yeah, the Japanese Water. ship that uh, ran aground in uh, on the coral in Mauritius, devastating.
1: Yes, very much
0: so. <laughs> <It laughs> As a really I'm sure that hits like especially home. Uh, yes, know, the oil slicks and, and and that sort of thing. It was just horrendous, right? Yes,
1: no, it's it's not it's not nice to see, but yeah, I understand. I also understand it's a balance. We do need oil to you know go, but yeah, when something like that happens, it does really hit home.
0: What do you think the impact in terms of years? um, What do you think the impact of that ship running aground in uh, Mauritius will do for that particular area?
1: Well, immediate impact would be, obviously, uh, um, the composition of the water is going to change. Um, the density of the water changes, so the penet- penetration of the light in the water is different, which means that species, you know, are, um, like fish would be confused because wow. they were on a diurnal um, uh, cycle and they wouldn't be able to know when it's dark and when it's light because it's dark all the time now, so they don't wow. come up to feed. So they die. So there's a lot of species that will die um, because of it. Their biodiversity. Their corals going to get hurt. Any sedimentary animal um, that cannot move is is going to get
0: really hurt by that. Unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. And of and of course, from a commercial point of view as well, uh, a large part of um, Mauritius' uh, GDP comes from tourism, which is going to be yeah. dramatically impacted as well. So sad yeah. to see. Yes, there is, a, there is a
1: university there, so there is, um, I'm almost sure they have an oceanographic institute there, I haven't been to Mauritius myself, um, but I think that, you know, if, if I were them, I would create this opportunity, especially if the international travel bans have been lifted, to get people in, volunteers to come and help with um, cleaning it up, um, and relocating species and things, and that could also be, that, that could serve as a source of income, as well. There's a lot of people now, um, the new the younger generation, which is very heartening to see is that there are people that are really like, you know, eco warriors and they travel, um, and they they go to places and they build houses and they clean up beaches and yeah. you know they're, they're trying to make a difference. So with disasters like these, um I would urge the universities there to get a call out um, via their students, for people to yeah. come and
0: volunteer and clean up. Yeah, mm. just to echo your points, I think it's super interesting that um, we we are finding with millennials, you know, uh, really sort of stepping up to the plate in terms of taking responsibility, uh, mm. you know, uh, for the welfare of, of of this planet. You know, um, I think of uh, what's that young girl's name from?
1: Um, Creators.
0: Greta, you know, like uh, Greta and a whole bunch of other young people really just stepping up to the plate and saying, you know, it's our, it's our future or, you know, we, we're going to take responsibility, even if you old guys, um, you know, put your head in the sand and uh, sort of ignore yeah. stuff, you know?
1: Yeah, something, uh, sometimes it's, um, sometimes we need Greta's, um, but in the end, at the end of the day, what we do need is for everyone to understand that there's a balance, you know, there's yeah. a given that you take, and it's very important for everyone to understand that we need to take what we need and not what we want. Because um, if everyone could just adhere to that, we'd already be in a much better position. Um, also, just making small lifestyle um, style changes, you know, just drop the plastic bag. just... Trying, I mean, I'm I'm guilty. I still sometimes forget the bag because I'm running after a two-year-old and a four-month-old
0: and yeah. I forget it
1: and then I feel guilty. And yeah, so, but we are, you know, just focusing on one thing at a time and just making small changes and all the small changes will, will pay off at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing that I find, especially with shopping bags and the whole eco challenge or the whole eco warrior thing is that, Um, in order to change behavior in people, it's very difficult to do it if you shame them. You know, shaming someone into changing their behavior is not a sustainable solution for me. Um, What I find is education is the most important thing. It's a great driver. And in a sense, you've got to package it in a way that someone like me, who's selfish, sees the benefits of being responsible for that particular uh, commodity or uh, environment etc cetera, etc cetera. you know we can put a whole bunch of things under those categories but yes. I think that's the way to do it I think if we shame people um, people just you know get upset and you know sort of block it out
1: yes no, that's a 100% true <laughs> definitely yeah no you have to make little little changes little changes at a time. I think it's wonderful that the Western Cape has got a recycling initiative. That's amazing. That's already a lot less plastic going and glass going um, everywhere. So, um, at least we have that.
0: With me being in the clothing sector, you know, there's also some really, really interesting things happening in the clothing sector with uh, recycled plastic from oceans, etc. And I think in the coming years, I think we're going to see much more innovation as well, just in terms of fabrics and that sort of thing uh, that that are easier on the environment, uh, takes less water to process, uh, dyes that are not toxic and that sort of thing. Uh, so hopefully we'll see more and more innovation. But uh, listen, I think you're doing a great job. I think uh, your area of expertise is absolutely interesting, and and but also you're a cool person, so you you, you make <laughs> it sound much cooler. Uh, but <laughs> Thanks, thank you John. so much for chatting me this uh, chatting to me this evening. It was really enlightening. Uh, chatting cool. to you about the the lobsters and the oysters and all of the other interesting stuff. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking time. Cool. It was lovely um, speaking to you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Right. (laughs) You're a star. Take care of yourself. And uh, let me just say thank you to everyone that joined us this evening uh, to support Michelle and to tune in. I do these conversations twice a week. If you're keen, check out my Instagram feed. And uh, the next one will be on Wednesday. So um, if you enjoyed it, uh, pop by and uh, we can have a chat.
1: Cool. Thanks, Dion. Have a good evening.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.